0: Let's start this new um, year of Sunday school by praying the first two psalms in the Psalter on page 785 in your hymnal. 785. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. I'll pray the portion that is in regular print, and you all respond with the bolded verses. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. righteous, In Psalm 2, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Let's pray. Father, indeed, blessed are those who take refuge in your Son. And so today, Father, we indeed kiss the Son. We kneel before Him. We offer Him our our homage, Father, and our worship. And We pray that you would bless us um, this hour um, as we um, prepare for worship in Sunday school, um, that your Spirit be present with us, that you would grant us wisdom even as we talk about the person and nature of your Son. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you today. Um, I've got some handouts. Let's see, Lauren, will you help me hand out some of these? That'd be great. Thank you, sir. You're good, Jeremy. If you just put the remainder in the back, that'd be great on the sound booth. Um, so, as you likely know already, um, today we're starting a new kind of quarter in Sunday School. And so the focus of the next five or six weeks or so that we're going to be discussing is um, this book, Gentle and Lowly, um, a book by a man named Dane Ortland. Um, there are copies of it that are available on the foyer um, for free. I um, would love for you to take one. We've got plenty, so if you and your spouse both want one, um, that's great. If your um, child is going to read it and wants to read it, that's great. Get one for them too. We've got plenty of these copies um, for you. Um, So this is a practice that we've had at at Colleyville the past four or five years or so to um, kind of go through books together um, in Sunday school class and and just kind of teach through them and talk about them. Um, Some past books that we've covered, we've covered On the Incarnation by Athanasius, and we've done Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We've done The Institutes of Religion by John Calvin. And we've done uh, most recently lectures on Calvinism by Abraham Kuyper. Um, And so the book that we're doing this time is different, it's important to say, upright, um, from the previous books we've covered in several regards. One is um, that um, the author is living. Um, All these other books have been older and their writers have been deceased. And so there's been a a great deal of time that's passed um, since the publication of those books, enough time to, I think, designate all four of the works we've looked at previously as classics of Christian theology and literature generally. Um, uh, We don't know whether or not Gentle and Lowly is going to be a Christian classic. You know, nobody can answer that question for another 50 years or so, I would say. Um, It's possible, um, certainly, but it's, um, but it is not yet, you know, attain that kind of status. So this is a, a different thing in that sense. This is a book that just came out in 2020, so it's far more contemporary than other works that we've done together. Um, it's also different in the sense that um, this book, Gentleman and Lowly, is not, these other four works that we've looked at are each in their own way um, works of kind of um, high register theology in different ways. Um, the probably exception to that would be Bonhoeffer's book is a little lower register. Um, uh, but But Dane's book is is certainly more, it's certainly theological, and we're going to talk about that, but it is also more, I would say, kind of devotional in nature. Um, It's not a kind of systematic argument um, that he's unpacking. It it reads more like a series of reflections on the heart of Jesus. Um, And certainly there are connections um, with broader theological arguments, but it is a more devotional um, type book, more popularly written type book, I would say, than others that we've done. So you may like that, you may not like that, um, but that's certainly a difference um, in this work than others that we have um, done before. Um, And just a comment about, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to do a contemporary book is because I do think it's important for us as believers to um, be reading personally in our lives. Um, It's one of the great benefits of living at the time that we do, um, that there's so much available in terms of resources um, that are published in print um, for Christians to digest and to wrestle with and reflect with. Um, And I think that's a a good habit for us. It's a good practice for us um, as believers um, to be stretching ourselves theologically, um, to be working uh, through things spiritually, even through uh, the reading of books. And that's You know, something that has been true for Christians for a very long time, um, that they have worked through theological problems or um, their own spiritual questions um, through the reading of literature. Not only the scriptures, of course, should be central for us in that regard, um, but other Christian literature has always been important. You see that, you know, even in the early church, um, the importance of of other writings um, happens very quickly and so but it 's also good for us to be doing that in community with one another i mean it 's fine for us to be doing that individually um, on our on our own in our homes um, uh, on our commutes if we 're listening to an audiobook that kind of thing but there 's also, I think a value of reading books and talking about them with other believers and other brothers and sisters in Christ, other people that we trust and respect and we can learn together in that manner, and so I think there's value in doing that, and even in a book like Danes. And, and part of the reason I wanted to do this book too is because I know that it's become very, um, it's it's very popular, um, for lack of a better word. Um, and as far as you know, books published by um, Crossway Publishing go, I'm sure it's one of their um, maybe one of their top sellers ever um, outside of they also published the ESV. But in terms of you know just their normal um, books. Um, it's gotten a lot of press. It's gotten a lot of reviews. A lot of people have read it. Some of you may have already read it. Um, and so with that in mind, I thought it would be a good title for us to read together. Um, the, uh, the other difference I would say between this book and other books is that I haven't previously read this book. I had previously read all four of the other titles that we had worked through. So I'm working through this as we go um, with you all. Um, but there are, you know, many uh, guys that I respect and think highly of have, have spoken highly of the book, so I'm confident it's going to be useful for us and good for us. Um, but it is different in that sense. Um, it's a different kind of book. Any questions about any of that? Okay, I want to provide a few biographical things, and I want to give you a chance to tell me about your own thoughts if you've started reading. So uh, a little bio here at the bottom of your page about Dane Ortlund. Um, so I just pulled this off of a website. It says, Dane was called to be the senior pastor at Naperville Presbyterian Church, which is a PCA church, pretty large PCA church in the suburbs of Chicago, in 2020 after being part of the church for 13 years along with his family. I'm his college sweetheart, Stacy, their are five kids, Zach, Nate, Jeremiah, Chloe, and Ben. Uh, Dane is a graduate of Wheaton College uh, for his bachelor's, Covenant Theological Seminary for his MDiv and and um, uh, Master's of Theology, and Wheaton College Graduate School. He has a PhD in New Testament. And then prior to coming on staff, he worked for 10 years in Christian publishing at Crossway in Wheaton. So this gives you a little bit of an idea of Dane's background. Um, it's worth saying that um, two of Danes, uh, his father and his grandfather, who are both named Ray, um, are fairly prominent kind of pastors in the Presbyterian world. If you know the Presbyterian world is not really a huge world, but if you know the Presbyterian world, um, um, you, you may have heard of um, Ray Ortland or Ray Ortland Jr. Um, his grandfather is deceased now and his father is still a minister, although not any longer a Presbyterian minister. He's... Um, in an independent church at this point, I believe, um, but but that's sort of part of Dane's story is you know having kind of prominent, um, well-known pastors for father, grandfather, and father. Um, his his Ph.D. that he did at Wheaton um, was in um, the New Testament. It has to do with Paul's language of zeal in places like Romans ten and Philippians um, three. Um, and so anyway, that's just the background for him that he's done some pretty high-level New Testament studies of the guy named Doug Moo, who's a professor at um, Wheaton, who's a really well-respected New Testament professor. Um, it is important, I think, to say as we read this book that Dane does not have a lot of um, deep kind of theological background. Um, that's, you know, just not his field. Um, he was only ordained as a pastor in 2020, um, so he just became a pastor um, he's been in the publishing world. He's been in um, these kinds of things, so so his his background is is different in that way, and I think that comes through in some of the book itself. Um, probably one of my you know places where I'm going to push back at times in the book is where I think he might lack some some rigor theologically um, that would have been maybe helpful for him in some of the ways that he talks about um, Christ and his heart and those kinds of things. Um, and that's not you know we've interacted critically with all of the books that we've looked at um, uh, over the years together, so I'm not intending to critique Dane's book in some deep way, but I do think there's places where I would want you, as one of my parishioners, to read parts of this book, at least be like, huh, you know, I'm not sure if I totally am on board with that. I think it's okay for us to do that with books, and I'm going to show you a few places where where I might have that um, impression. So Dane um, talks about this right up front in his introduction that his book is A Substantial Interaction with um, the Heart of Christ by Thomas Goodwin, who was a, a Puritan, so I thought it would be good for you to have an idea of who Thomas Goodwin is, at least a tiny little idea. Um, Goodwin was born on the year six, in the year 1600 and died in 1680, um, um, so 17th century. Um, he was an English Puritan um, who was part of the Westminster Assembly. Um, that met um, around the middle part of his life and produced the Westminster Standards, the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechism. He was part of that group um, that produced those documents, which are part of our, of course, um, standards now as a church. Um, He was a contemporary of John Owen, who's a more famous um, contemporary that you may have heard of (coughs) and be familiar with. Um, he, he grew up in the Church of England but left the Church of England in 1634 um, after becoming, after being ordained um, to join the Puritan movement. This was during the, the context as there was a lot of um, sort of high church, low church debate, um, to put it very uh, broadly and simply, within the Church of England at that time. And um, there was a sense by the Puritans that that the high church people who controlled the Church of England were imposing their Way, manner of worship and their, um, their, their theology, even in some ways, on um, everyone, regardless of their convictions. And so the Puritans were those that separated um, out of the Church of England. Um, he actually, uh, Goodwin was one of those who went to Holland for a time um, to sort of flee um, what they, you know, perceived to be persecution from the, um, the state church and then came back and was part of the assembly. Um, so that's that's part of his story. If you know that century, there's a lot that takes place. You know, there's some times when the Church of England has a sort of high, um, uh, you know, has the, has the upper hand. And then there's also times when the Puritans have the upper hand, and they sort of run things. And so it kind of goes back and forth in terms of um, prominence within Britain at that time, England at that time. Um, so he was very closely connected to... Um, John Owen. Um, It says here, I got this quote, in the Puritan heyday of the 1650s, which was kind of the high point of the Puritans historically in terms of their, um, at least their, you know, prominence in their own day. Uh, When Owen was vice chancellor of Oxford University, Goodwin was president of Magdalen College, and for years they shared a Sunday afternoon pulpit. Both were chaplains to Cromwell, who was kind of the leader of the political Puritan movement, and together they would author the Savoy Declaration the Savoy Declaration is essentially a document that came out that is the Westminster Standards edited um, for congregational churches. Um, so Goodwin was a congregationalist, which means that he believed that churches should be independently governed um, and, and not, you know, be governed or influenced by other churches, should be independent in that way. So he was not Presbyterian, it's important to say that. Um, uh, and so, but he wanted to take the Westminster Standards and sort of Modify them and, and make them work in a congregational context, and and there were congregationalists obviously present at the Westminster Assembly, <coughs> and um, Goodwin and Owen would both be prominent um, examples of that. Um, so there are going to be some differences with Goodwin in that regard um, from people like Calvin or people like us. Um, their ecclesiology is going to be different. They're going to have, you know, broadly speaking, a lower church, a lower view of the church, um, institutional church. I would say in general. And that, that certainly comes through in um, some of the, the writings of people like Goodwin and Owen as well. And I'll just say, I, I am not someone, just in terms of my own theological background, who is deeply familiar with the Puritans. Um, some of you may have read deeply in Puritan literature. There's a whole, you know, a whole universe of, of Puritan writings that exists. Um, they were very prolific, and of course there's a... Uh, These days, a modern-day publishing house called Banner of Truth that, you know, is their mission, basically, is to keep in print as many Puritan writings as possible um, from the, you know, especially the 17th century. Um, And so I would just say that up front, that I'm not someone who's deeply um, familiar with a lot of Puritan writers. It's not been my background theologically, and so even this book, I think, will be a little bit of an education for me in terms of getting into Puritan literature, because Dane, obviously himself is very influenced by Puritan literature, and um, by Goodwin in particular, and he quotes directly from them frequently. All right, I'm going to stop there. That's a little way of introduction. Um, any thoughts about <clears throat> any of that? Any just kind of general impressions that anybody wants to make about the book cause if you've started reading already any things that have stood out or just generally just kind of is what I'm talking about sort of track with your experience of the book so far yeah I would certainly commend it to you I, I think it's a it's a, it's a worthwhile um, book for you to read and I think you'll find it pretty accessible um, it's not hard reading, certainly. Okay. Well let's let's begin to jump into a little bit of the content of the, the first couple chapters. I'm gonna talk a little bit about the introduction and then um some of the main thesis that, that um I think Ortland has and then we'll I'll give a place for some questions and thoughts that you guys may have from the first um, chapters of the book. So so Ortland starts his book, um, this is his very first words in his introduction. He says, this is on page two of your handout, he says, this is a book about the heart of Christ. The heart of Christ, that's where he wants to focus. Who is he? Who is he really? What is most natural to him, right? What is, uh, we might say, instinctive, um, to use a anthropological category Um, what ignites within him most immediately as he moves towards sinners and sufferers what flows out most freely most instinctively who is he so this is helpful Dane really gives us a um, and I should also just say I, I know Dane a little bit not well at all but we overlapped at Covenant Seminary for a couple years you know we're Facebook friends or whatever that, we that level of, of friend. Um, <clears throat> uh, he's, he's a good guy. So anyway, um, he says, he, he really wants to focus on the heart of Jesus, the, um, the passions of Jesus, the, 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 the person of Jesus um, as he's revealed in his work, but sort of what does Jesus' work reveal about his desires, his joys, um, um, his human person in, it, in himself. And I think that's an interesting quest um, for someone um, to do. It's not necessarily the way that we always think of Jesus um, as a human person fully in that way. And I think that's one of the ways in which this book is helpful, is that it, it really takes seriously um, the humanity of Jesus in a particular way. Um, and, and, it, and it's appropriate, I think, it's appropriate for us to talk about things like Jesus's heart, Jesus' desires, um, Jesus's passions, um, because that's part of what it means to be a human being, is to experience those things. And part of um, the incarnation of our Lord is that he joined himself to us in every way. Um, including all of those things. And I, I think it's important for us to think about that. Uh, Dane says, It is one thing to ask what Christ has done, but we are not focusing centrally in this book, so to speak, on what Christ has done. Um, he recommends other works you know, um, that focus on that in terms of the, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, um, those kinds of things. We are considering who he is. Um, So he really wants to make that distinction, that his book is not primarily going to be uh, focused on, of course, these things are not really separable in some way. Um, What Jesus does reveals who he is. Um, You can't really talk about who he is apart from what he does. Um, But Dane wants to, in this book, focus primarily on um, the person of Christ um, without getting into sort of the theological uh, details of the work of Christ. You might know, he says, that Christ died and rose again on your behalf to rinse you clean of all your sin. But do you know his deepest heart for you? And so this is kind of the point he's going to come back to again and again. He does a great job of laying it out in his introduction, kind of what he's trying to do and what he intends to do throughout this book. So this book really has to do with this question of how do we think of Jesus? And just as kind of an introductory uh, way I want to talk about this question for a minute because I think it's an interesting one and I'm actually very interested to know kind of what you all think I hope you'll be willing to talk some about your own perspective on the things that Dane writes here in the introduction <clears throat> he uses because Dane is concerned that there is a problem with with the way that we think about Jesus essentially there, there's a problem that in his mind that is driving this book um, which is that we don't I think I'm using the generic we, just Christians in general. Um, Believers often, I think Dane would say, uh, don't think properly about the person of Christ, that we assume that he is um, pugnacious, that he is um, distant, that he is uh, bothered um, by us, um, and he wants to address that problem. And and that's something I'm really interested to hear from you all, if you can identify with that (coughs) sense that he has of that problem. So he starts with this quote from Thomas Goodwin, um, this work, The Heart of Christ from the 17th century, um, which says, Men are apt to have contrary conceits of Christ, um, impressions, but he tells them his disposition here um, or there. This is, Goodwin is reflecting on the genuine lowly uh, quote from Matthew 11. (coughs) Um, But he tells them his disposition there by preventing such hard thoughts of him to allure them unto him the more. We are apt to think that he, being so holy, is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners and not able to bear them. No, says he, says Christ, I am meek. Gentleness is my nature and temper." So Orlin reflects on that quote from Goodwin. He says, We project onto Jesus our skewed instincts about how the world works. And without realizing what we are doing, we quietly assume that one so high and exalted has corresponding difficulty drawing near to the despicable and the unclean. Sure, Jesus comes close to us, we agree, but he holds his nose and then he unpacks this on the next page with this kind of metaphor, um, and says, we naturally think of Jesus touching us the way a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time, face screwed up, cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact and instantly withdrawing. I will say I am not convinced by Dane that that's how a little boy touches a slug for the first time. maybe the second time, <laughs> um, but, but I think most little boys um, just go right in uh, the first time. And um, uh, so anyway, but but um, so he does have um, this image. We naturally think of Jesus touching us the way a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time, uh, face screwed up, <coughs> cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact, and instantly withdrawing. We picture the risen Christ a- approaching us with uh, quote, severe and sour disposition, as Goodwin says. So here's what I'll talk about for a second. Does that ring true? Um, do we naturally, do you naturally think of Jesus uh, viewing you this way? Is that, is that, a, is that a thing that resonates? Um, I'm, cu- I'm curious, because it's kind of where he starts his book. It's, it's obviously the thing that he wants to address. He's going to come back to it a lot. Yeah, Billy. It's not the way you approach the lepers, for sure. Yeah, and obviously Dane will make that will make that point, and that's not at all how Jesus approaches people, actually. But, but he's claiming that this is how you and I sort of naturally understand Jesus to be to be, uh, you know, holding back or to be, um, you know, what is it, sour and and severe. to be, yeah, to not, to not, you know what I'm talking about, but what are you going to say, James? Does this resonate with you?
1: <laughs> 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 like, I mean, wants to talk about his love, but like, don't forget that he also turned the tables over in the temple. Right.
0: So that's not necessarily, you feel like, impacted you deeply as a person, but you've heard that, you you feel like that ra- rings true with your experience in the church. A of
1: <coughs> <coughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. A of yeah.
0: And mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the, Donna, did you have a comment? Yeah. I'll do my best. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting distinction. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, so Donna said, in case you didn't hear it, (coughs) that she may not feel that with Jesus, but she might with regard to the Father. Um, And I think that's an important, I appreciate you saying that, Donna, because I think that's a not uncommon um, experience that people have of of God um, of the Trinity um, certainly that that um, caricature is is promoted at times in terms of just even you know theologically in different circles where the father is the sort of you know judge um who has to be placated, and the son does that, and he kind of gets between the father and us somehow um so that we're protected from the father's judgment or wrath and and you know there are ways that we should talk about penal substitution um but i do think that that can become a certainly a caricature and that yeah that can impact how we just perceive instinctively intuitively the persons of the trinity i appreciate that yeah david and jeremy Right. If Jesus is pure and holy, yeah. I think, um, I mean, personally, it took a while for me to understand Christ's humanity mm-hmm. because he's you know, very God, very human. Mm-hmm. And for me, there was some distance in being like, I don't know, like when I grew up and you went to a old church mom's house, she'd like a picture of Jesus on the wall. That's mm-hmm. oh, yes, Jesus, you know. That's old. <laughs> <laughs> idea that he is a step above us, hmm. but until you really get into the scriptures and into maybe some tertiary sources, you get to see that Jesus is actually much closer to us. So yeah. I think it's something you have to learn. Yeah. It doesn't I. come naturally. No, it doesn't. I appreciate that. Yeah. So I, so it sounds like David's saying that there are some ways he can certainly resonate with the the picture that Ortland paints. Who else had their hand up? Jeremy? Yeah, go for it. I mean, I'm just, I'm just curious. I'm genuinely curious to, to know, does this, is this book scratching something that exists? I mean, I, like, I certainly get the idea about, like, the,
1: kind of like, but for the kind of recoiling, I feel like it's me who recoiling. I feel like I'm the one who's afraid to reach out and touch. Mm-hmm. Mhm. More like, like you know, uh, you're saying go away from me, Lord. And I'm a simple man. Mhm. Like, yeah. Gotta, like, Right. Who's
0: recoiling because of the because of like, you know, like the holy holy the ark of the covenant feeling of Sure. Yeah. Know. Well there's certainly a scriptural uh, basis for that in terms of the that that's certainly a theme of So Jeremy's saying that for him the idea of recoiling he perceives that not so much Jesus pulling back, but his own instinct being to to maybe pull back or to recoil. Um, when he draws close to the holy, in, the holy God. Anybody else? Yeah, look yeah Yeah. parent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So that's not something that you personally resonate with in terms of this image that he's presenting of how we instinctively view Jesus. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. So like Krisha was saying, um, any, any righteous, faithful parent is never going to recoil back from their child, um, regardless of, you know, what they've, what they, what they look like or, um, what they're, what trouble they're in. No, that's true. That's fair. And if we can do that, then certainly God does that with us, um, because our our parenting is a just a ref- dim reflection of His. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I underst understand that. And sort of, of course, a lot of that's going to be impacted by what kind of parents we had, um, and I I uh, think that's an important part of um, the instincts that we have. It's interesting to think about how those things are even connected to how we instinctively think about God is, is going to be largely, there's so much that our parents do to shape us in terms of this kind of thing, how we, how, we in, how we think that God instinctively responds to us in our sin and our failure and our shame. Certainly one of the biggest factors in that is how our parents dealt with us um, over the years when we were in those kinds of situations. Yeah, Mike.
1: Yeah. kind of a secondary thought that happens also then that, but then you know, I don't view my sin isn't that bad, he probably does that with some of those other people <laughs> <in the sparkle. laughs> you know, I, yeah.
0: I appreciate that so Mike's saying that that he can he can anticipate how it's sort of it doesn't necessarily feel that about himself but he can he can kind of imagine how Jesus might respond that way to others um, who are more more worse off than he is yeah (laughs) no that makes sense that is interesting I can see that anybody else
1: Mm-hmm. You know, and so we don't want to, um, hmm. or maybe I should just give this to the person that I, don't want to get into the Jesus is my boyfriend right. thing. Yep. Does that make sense? It does. And
0: so, um, because that starts to get too shallow mm-hmm. in some ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. That yeah. 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 And I, so Donna's saying that there may be a little hesitation because we don't want to sort of make Jesus out to be our boyfriend, or there's kind of this, like, it maybe feels overly sentimental, or I don't know. Yeah. You trivialize, yeah, that's a good word, Mike. Yeah. So maybe it trivializes the nature of Jesus in some way if we do this too much. We might have that sense at least. And I think that's a fair point. I think particularly, certainly for um Reformed people, um, the people, you know, the, our denomination, um, that is, that can be a concern, and that it can be something we might hold back from instinctively, um, certainly. I think that's right. I think, I think there are other traditions of the church that emphasize that more, are more comfortable with that emphasis, right, other parts of the church. Um, uh, certainly, uh, you know, I grew up in the Pentecostal world and uh, charismatic world, and that was certainly something that there was not as much nervousness about in terms of talking about the heart of jesus or the the emotional life of jesus or those kinds of things yeah yeah that's interesting anybody else any other thoughts about how this strikes you all well that's helpful for me it's helpful for me just to get a sort of idea of of how this i think this is this idea that dane has is really central to his argument so i think it's really important um to get a sense for whether that is is sticking with us and, and i will just say personally i think part of this is my own maybe it's the tradition i grew up in theologically and church-wise um maybe it's my parents um maybe it's just god's grace i don't know But I would say, personally, I don't particularly struggle, and I don't think I really ever have deeply struggled with the kind of thing that Ortland is describing here about Jesus, you know, not viewing us, viewing us with a little reticence or a little, you know, um, not disgust maybe, but I don't know, whatever it is, whatever word you might want to use that he's sort of holding back or, that's never been my experience, and I'm grateful for that. I know that's a Gift um, that I've never wrestled deeply with that question um, of how God views me in my sinfulness, but I know I know as a pastor, of course, that it is a not uncommon struggle. Um, and so, th- if this is something that you do struggle with, you should know that that you're not—it's not an unusual thing um, for you to struggle with the way in which. Christ thinks of you and your sin the way which he responds to you Uh, you know as Dane puts it yes Jesus comes close to us he forgives us etc but he quote-unquote holds his nose right he he sort of is he's kind of bothered by it right he's kind of wishes you would just stop so he doesn't have to keep forgiving you um and and so I just want you know, I do think it's important to say that 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 is a real thing that exists, and it's interesting it apparently existed in the seventeenth century because Goodwin talks about it um, explicitly um, so it's not just a you know modernity problem. Um, this is something that that has been around um, in different ways in the church um, and I think that's important to say and, and, and I love even that um, that picture that you mentioned jeremy of of Peter when Jesus makes the fills his boat with fish so that it's sinking and you know peter's first response to that is to say get away from me i'm a sinful man right Um, there's something even maybe human about that sort of pulling away from god um, his holiness and his transcendence so ortland says this is why we need a bible Our natural intuition can only give us a God like us. The God revealed in the scripture deconstructs our intuitive predilections and startles us with one um, whose infinitude of perfections is matched by his infinitude of gentleness. Indeed, his perfections include his perfect gentleness. And, um, And that really is going to be the argument, I think, of the book as a whole, is going to be that, that Jesus um, draws near to us um, and that his, his gentleness, um, you know, that especially Matthew 11 where he talks about, I am gentle and lowly of heart, is a true, is as true a revelation of who he is as the money changers, right, um, the, the temple, the incident in the temple that James referred to earlier, or it's as true a, re- a revelation of his heart as... Um, when he appears in glory um, uh, in Revelation 1 and, and John falls at his feet as though dead. Um, that you know These are all true representations of who Jesus is. And I'll just say this is one of the critiques that I would have of this book is that I think that sometimes Dane, I don't know if it's like a rhetorical flourish. Th- I mean, this is probably just my natural preference. Like Dane certainly writes in a way that is more kind of overwrought, I would say, than I would prefer, naturally, just in terms of prose, right? He just, he tends to just throw a lot of words in there and, you know, um, and just say things pretty strongly. So, so I'm just, I know I'm being a little bit picky here, um, but he does make comments like, um, in this, the first chapter, he's unpacking that, that, uh, that description of Jesus that Jesus gives, I am gentle and lowly of heart. He says, in the four gospel accounts given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 89 chapters of biblical text, there's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. Only in one place, perhaps the most wonderful words ever uttered by human lips, do we hear Jesus himself open to us about his very heart. And the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer down into the core of who he is. And then he talks about how that's what's taking place in Matthew 11. And I would just say, friends, that's not a helpful way to read the Gospels, like I would just say, like don't read the Gospels that way um all of the stories of the gospels, the parables uh jesus's interaction with um the lepers um you know jesus's interaction with the Samaritan woman, jesus's actions in the temple um when he over you know he flips over the the tables, which incidentally is all about jesus' zeal for people and his his um, anger that the gentiles are being excluded from um, the courts of the temple where they're supposed to be present all of those places are places where jesus is revealing his heart <laughs> i i don't i don't i wouldn't want to say this in a sermon i i don't love that dane says this that gives us impression that somehow matthew 11 is a sign of like a ah, moment where we like finally see what jesus's heart is like you know um it's the one place um um I totally agree with Dane that it's a really important place, and it's it's like a you know we should definitely pay attention to it and take it seriously and all those things. But um, but we need to be careful about sort of I don't know saying this is like the you know the one place where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer down on the core of who He is. I don't think that's true. I think that's very overstated. Um, and if you were going to make that argument in any place, you would I think make it about the crucifixion. I would argue theologically. Um, so certainly, certainly if you read the the apostles and how they talked about the person of Christ and how God revealed himself in Jesus, the cross is the place where they go, not, not Matthew 11. Um, so anyway, so I'll just say that, but that's just sort of like, um, just generally, um, Dane's argument is going to be, and I think it's a good argument, it's a fine argument. I don't want to, you know, overly critique the argument. Um, that we need to take seriously the person of Jesus. Um, and, and certainly, as Dane puts it in a different place, um, and this is in chapter 2, his heart in action, I think this is absolutely true. Um, he quotes from page 27. He says, um, When we take the Gospels as a whole and consider the composite picture given to us of who Jesus is, what stands out most strongly? <clears throat> and I think that's a wonderful question to ask. Um, the Gospels are attempting to give us a composite picture of Jesus. That's why there are four of them, for example. Uh, the dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the Gospel, the most vivid and arresting element of the portrait, is the way in which the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it, yet truly desire it. I think that's a wonderful Um, reflection and picture of that's exactly right that is who um, Jesus reveals himself to be again and again in the scriptures that he is he is remarkable compassion and patience and grace and he engages people and um, he has time for them and he's not bothered by them Um, you know the the people of course that Jesus does Jesus does at times respond with anger and and even harshness, we might say, but he reserves that for those, and this is a you know something that someone in my position needs to take really seriously. He reserves those kinds of words for for people who are in spiritual authority and who are abusing that authority and um, that 's where he he turns that kind of judgment and wrath i 'm not saying that 's the only people Jesus judges ultimately, but certainly the gospels that 's where his um, his frustration is targeted, um, is towards people who have authority, especially spiritual authority, who are not using that authority rightly. All right, we could talk more about some of these things, but I just want to, before we wrap up, any just kind of thoughts, those of you that are reading this book, any things that you wanted to point out? or has, Yes, James. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate it. That's a great question, James, Um, and one that I'm not prepared to kind of delve into all the nuances of that um, in the moment. I do think, I want to, I think next week I want to spend some time talking about some of this. I'd I'd put some quotes here on the first page um, that have been important for me. I do think that that resonance between the Son and the Father is really important for us as believers. I think it's something that Jesus himself talks about a good deal. And it's something. Some of the questions you may be talking about are ones that I'm not sure we can really exactly unpack um, in terms of how, you know, what it what is it like to say that the Father and the the Triune God Himself and His eternal being, um, and His ontological character has passions, right? This is you may probably know, right? This is a much debated um, point um, within theological discourse um for uh two millennia uh, really um and there are all sorts of you know ditches on either side you can fall into um including heretical ones so you want to be you know pretty nuanced and careful but uh, but i do think that we should um that we can say and i want to unpack this more next week we can say we should say with the scriptures that the person of jesus christ is a true and trustworthy and comprehensive revelation of the Father. Um, that there is, if there's anything else that Jesus wanted to convey unto um, his followers and to those that he taught, it was that, that he was like his Father, and that he and the Father were one, and that, he, if, if, you know, as he tells uh, Philip, you know, Philip, how can you say, show me the Father? You've seen me. You've seen the Father. Um, and so we need to be able to say that, whatever else we want to say about the passions of God and all the rest. All right, let's let's um, let's close. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're thankful for this Lord's Day. We're thankful for the way in which, indeed, your Son gives us all that we need um, to trust you, to trust your love and your goodness and your grace. And I pray, Father, that Um, Even um, the next um, five weeks or so as we read uh, through this book, Father, together, that it would be, you would use it by your spirit as a means of repair and and the places where um, we may have deficient or fearful images of who you are or who your son is uh, towards us, Father, that you would give us um, grace to grow in maturity and confidence and boldness before you, even confidence to come before you um, and trust that you are good. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.